annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? Who, where is the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden the, into the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is here in the house with me? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 70 feet, 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke out to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther then again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamathada, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's providences. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. The invitation and challenge of the kingdom of God has been laid out for Esther by her uncle Mordecai. That's where we left her last time. She can either take advantage of such a time as this to participate in what the Lord is doing, or she can decline the offer to be involved and find herself on the outside of how God is moving before her. The choice is hers, but her uncle assures her the Lord's will will be done either way. The last time we were with Esther, she made her choice. You remember that profound statement that she gave, if I perish, I perish. Even though the shadow of evil looms over her and her people thanks to the vengeful plan of one powerful man, Esther chooses to live out of her covenant identity. She chooses, she decides to face death for the sake of the life of her people. And as a queen, Esther is uniquely positioned to take such a risk. Such a step, though, requires her, remember, to come clean as to her true identity as a Jew. And Esther conceives of a plan not of her own, but by acting on dependence upon her father. And that reliance is reflected, you'll recall from last time, through her call for fasting and by implication the prayers of the people. Three days have passed, and now it's time for her to step out in faith. 
Once again, we have before us, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the convergence of divine providence and human responsibility. Last week, if you were with us through the tragic story of Haman, we saw the limits of where our pride and our independence from the Lord can and will take us. But now, through the next part of Esther's story, it's time for us to witness the opposite, to witness what can happen when one life answers the call, and lives out of their covenant identity and kingdom responsibility. We have the opportunity to see as divine providence converges and human responsibility come together what one person can do. It's important before we proceed to keep something in mind, though. Very, very important. It's important for us to keep in mind that while we have the benefit of knowing what will happen next, as we go through these events... Esther didn't. Esther didn't know how her story would end. But she believed that the Lord was the one who was writing the most important chapters. It's important for us to understand as we go through this, Esther wasn't just playing the odds. Esther clearly didn't make the safe or even logical call. And for the sake of what we celebrate today, it wasn't even as if Esther threw a Hail Mary. Esther was responding to the reality, to the witness of God's presence in her life. She acted in faith, even though death already looked to have its day, its day even. So, to set the stage, just to appreciate, to put ourselves in Esther's shoes as we recap what happens here. Remember that in the immediacy of the moment, in real time, everything is going against Esther. The government is against her. The official decree has already gone out. The way of the empire has been set. As a Jew, even as the queen of all Persia, Esther is a walking dead person. The economics of the realm are working against her. Haman is paying quite a sum to see his plan executed. And just to put it in perspective, the amount of money that Haman's willing to pay to see this done was worth half a year's taxes in the Persian empire. Added to this, for all the other nobles, there's much to be gained by plundering the Jews. Less people means more land and more wealth for everyone else. So the economics of the realm are working against Esther. The politics of the situation would appear to be working against her also. Remember, Haman, at this point in the story, is the king's number one guy. Everyone, everyone but her uncle bows down to him. He's got the ear and even the signet ring of the king at his disposal. No one wants to cross Haman. And the law is working against Esther. The law that said that no one could initiate an audience with or interrupt the king without being summoned to the throne first. A very clear and specific law. The rationale behind this law being that the king had to be protected had to be protected from things that might interrupt his schedule, but more pointedly, the king had to be protected from bad news. Because bad news means bad king. And if you're a king, it's all good all the time. And you surround your people with, yourself with people who make sure that that's exactly how it is. The correct protocol was that if you wanted an audience with the king, you requested an audience through one of his messenger eunuchs and then waited for an invitation to come and speak. There's actually a little note I want to add to this because I think it also shows another way that things are working against Esther. The ancient Hero uh, historian Herodotus tells us that in the Persian Empire, there were seven men in the court 
who were designated as friends of the king, who were permitted to see the face of the king unannounced. So even in the midst of this very specific law, there were seven men who were permitted to see the face of the king unannounced. So it would seem even Esther's gender is working against her. She's the queen. But then again, she's a woman. Then again, she's just a dime a dozen. One out of 400 or 1,400. Remember, this king has a way of finding new queens without a problem. Esther's become queen because she was one out of 400 to 1,400 who were forcibly brought into the harem and then elevated up. So on the one hand, as Esther prepares to go forward, the road she's about to travel down looks uncertain with many obstacles working against her. Yet on the other hand, all signs point to Esther being positioned where she is for such a time as this. What does she do? The first insight we glean from Esther's journey is that answering God's call is not without risk, that responding to divine providence means we have to be bold. And that's what Esther models for us here, bold, being bold. And beloved, perhaps the, the boldest move we can make is taking that very first step of obedience, getting up and actually going down the road the Lord has put before us, no longer remaining on the sidelines, but daring to enter into the situation where God has called us. Esther is mentioned, her name, Esther, is mentioned 37 times in this book, 37 times. Out of those 37 times, 14 of those references put the term queen before her name. Interesting thing, though. Of those 14 references, only one of them, Queen Esther, only one of them occurs prior to what happens here. Isn't that interesting? I think it's because this is the part of the story where we witness Esther's boldness the transformation of her character from a seemingly powerful but relatively weak person. Remember, up till now, Esther's kind of just gone with the flow. She's worked the system. She's been royalty, but only in terms of her title. But now, through boldness, she becomes a heroic figure. Now, through her boldness, she becomes an agent of change. Esther's boldness begins by embracing her covenant identity as a child, as a woman of God. Esther refuses to be a trophy wife as she literally puts on the royal robes in defense of her people. She exudes confidence in her decision to appear before the king without being summoned by him. And it was a courageous move when you consider that King Xerxes had a reputation, oh, what should we say, he had a reputation for being somewhat unpredictable whenever his queen surprised him. Just ask Vashti. Esther models for us what it means to be bold in answering the Lord's call upon our lives. As she assumes the authority and power of the kingdom of God and stands waiting in the inner court of the palace, Esther truly becomes a queen. We need, like Esther, a transformation of our character. Because we can, like Esther, before this defining moment, we can, like Esther, before this defining moment, live like royalty, but in title only. Beloved, there are too many people trying to live in the kingdom of God by being Christians in name only. It's very easy 
We see it more and more every day. It's very easy to turn our relationship with Jesus into nothing more than a religion. In fact, as a pastor, not just within our community, but beyond talking to other colleagues, I'm starting to believe quite strongly that the reason most of us don't share Jesus with others, and let's be honest, most of us don't share Jesus with others, The reason why most of us don't share Jesus with others is because we think that the gospel is more about what we're saved from than what we're saved for. We think the gospel is more about what we're saved from than what we're saved for. When Esther first became queen, it would seem the limit of her vision was the same as ours. When Esther first became queen, it would seem the limit of her vision was that she thought she was saved from her life as an orphaned, exiled Jew. It was only when she realized, thanks to her uncle Mordecai, what she was saved for, to be an instrument for the redemption of her people, that her character changed, that she became bold. What I'm trying to say to us this morning is obeying the law, following the rules, will never transform your character. Rules and regulations are great. They're important. Rules and regulations create the boundaries for the development, the promotion and protection of our identity so that we can know who we really are, so that we can know whom we ultimately belong to, so that we can know how we are to live. But religion does not in and of itself shape or solidify our character. In other words, just doing religion Just living by the law is just knowing how to stay out of trouble. It's just learning how to play the game and work the system. It's just coming every church to Sunday, sitting in a pew, singing a few songs, praying a few prayers, listening to the sermon, and then taking a shot of juice and grabbing some bread. And it will not change your character. But it will make you feel better. Character is shaped in the moments where the letter of the law is not enough and where the spirit of the law is all we have, where the rules are inadequate to anticipate every possible scenario, where the choice before us is not so black and white and the outcome is not predictable and a measure of faith is required. Character, in other words, my brothers and sisters, is a work of the Holy Spirit because the confidence and courage we need to live by faith are not qualities that we can muster on our own. And that's why if you just show up every week and think by sitting here and going through the motions that you're somehow going to be changed, it ain't going to happen. All of that are tools by which you are opening yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit, in which you're saying to yourself, okay, God, speak. I want to hear. Show me how you're working. I want to know. But if you hear and see and do not go, do not follow, nothing will change. Nothing will change. We learn how to be bold. We gain confidence. We find courage by living in dependence upon the Lord, by staying close to and copying the way of Jesus Christ. In other words, we become bold not just by believing in Jesus, but by actually following him. You and I, we get it backwards. Again and again, we get it backwards. We say things like, um, you know, we'll act and, and I'll follow Jesus when I straighten some things out about myself. When I get my character just right, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna commit, I'm gonna follow Jesus. 
But what Esther models for us is that character is formed and shaped not by our efforts in making ourselves better, but in taking that first step in answering God's call. The only exception to that Persian law about not approaching the king was if the king extended his golden scepter to the one who dared to approach him. This was considered a sign of acceptance, and if that happened, it spared the life of the one who broached the law. Esther is bold in taking this first step of faith, of action, but the minute that she takes that step, it becomes evident to her and to us that there's a larger force, a greater king at work behind the scepter of acceptance that is extended to her. What is your first step of boldness look like? What does that first step of boldness look like for you? How can you be bold in the position where the Lord has placed you? I believe with every fiber of my being that if you are here this morning, that that means that you believe in even the smallest of ways that God exists and that that means that you've seen in the smallest of ways, even the smallest of ways, the work of God in your life, that you have seen God's providence in motion, that you have experienced in your life things that you cannot just simply write off as coincidences, but you believe that there is a creator, there is a God who is at work. And I believe if you're here, you understand that that God has most profoundly revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And you have said, I believe in that Person, I believe in that God in Christ who is working, who has worked for me. And I believe if you're here, you're not just here because you believe that God has worked. You understand even in the smallest of ways that God has worked and is working because he wishes to involve you, that you're a part of that. And that means that if you're here, you know somewhere even in the smallest of ways in the depth of your being that you're not meant to just sit here that you're not meant to just keep coming back and waiting and waiting. Where is your step to be bold? Because I believe that if you are here, that in your life, God is working. Your life, God is working. That God has placed you where you are, not by accident, not by a coincidence. I believe there are things at play already in your life right now that you probably, as I'm speaking, are aware of that maybe you are choosing not to look at, have never thought of before. But the minute that I start speaking in this way, there is something that starts to burn within you. It's even in the smallest of places in your life, something where God is there. God is working. God has opened a door. And the question is, what will be that first bold step for you? Is it simply this? Stepping out of your comfort zone? If you haven't been a part of our Wednesday class, boldness is as simple as this, walking across the room to another person. Let me give you an example of, again, how our life can change and what boldness can look like. And it's small, but it's significant. You know, before Christ, how we make friends is dramatically different than how we make friends after we're in Christ. Before Christ, our basis for making friends is based upon who we are attracted to. People who have common interests, people who have things that we can relate to, people that we enjoy spending time with. In other words, our basis for friendship prior to Christ is what's in it for us. How does this benefit me? How is this better for me? But here's the thing, and many of us, this is a great example of following Christ. If we follow Christ and not just believe in him, then how we understand friendship dramatically changes. When we're in Christ, we no longer choose our friends, make our friends based upon that kind of criteria. We choose our friends, we make our friends not based on what's in it for me, but based upon what's in it for them. 
The people that we suddenly perceive as friends are not the people that we choose to go to. They are the people that God chooses to bring to us. Is perhaps that first, first bold step for you changing your understanding of what friendship is in the kingdom of God? Is it suddenly realizing that my definition and your definition of neighbor is not God's definition of neighbor? Or maybe that bold step for you today is revealing your true identity in a hostile environment. Esther concealed her identity. It wasn't safe to say that she was a Jew. And more and more Christians today, as we live in a seemingly hostile world, are Christians in the closet. We don't want to let people know because it will not be well received. Is that first bold step of faith of you willing to declare that you are a Christian? That you follow Jesus Christ in the midst of all of the hostility, the hypocrisy that will be leaped upon you, the, the charges of that, all the, the negative association. Is that first bold step being willing to say, I'm a Christian? To not hide your faith? Is that first bold step perhaps in a relationship that you have, many relationships, initiating the kind of conversation that's outside the rules? And you know the rules, right? Hey, when we get together, we have a good time because we don't talk about that God stuff. Jesus is great for you and all that stuff. We don't talk about that because we don't all agree on that. So therefore, if long enough to get along, we don't talk about God. We don't talk about Jesus. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to a law in Persia where the king basically says, look, we don't have a conversation unless I initiate it. Have a conversation with me where you initiate it and I'm going to cut you out. Is that first bold step perhaps being willing to take the risk of initiating a conversation, talking about, and I often find it's not just talking about God and Jesus. That's often sort of the capstone to not get real. Is, it about, is that bold step having a real conversation with someone? Let's talk about what's really going on in our lives. That first bold step, Esther has King Xerxes' full attention. The king even goes so far to assure Esther that anything she asked for would be granted, up to half of his kingdom. And that's not a statement to be taken literally. It's the king's way of showing Esther, telling her, you have my favor. Esther could have so easily asked the king to revoke his edict regarding the Jews, to deal harshly with Haman, who had contrived this plot against the people of his queen. But you know this story. Esther didn't do that. Instead, she continues to be bold. Rather than taking advantage of the king's favor, Esther delays making her request and invites the king and Haman to a special party, not once, but twice. And Esther teaches us something more here. Esther teaches us that being bold often goes hand in hand with being patient. Most of us don't make that association. Most of us don't associate being bold with waiting. For us, being bold is associated with going for it, seizing the moment. But what we see with Esther is being bold is not always you know, barging in half-cocked. That's being brash. That's being reckless. And this is a good word because for some of you, the first part of what I said, if Esther models for us to be bold, there are some, of our, some Christians among us who boldness is their speciality. Oh, I have no problem being bold. Loud and proud, baby. I'll let you know I'm a Christian. I'll tell you about Jesus. I'll cram him down your throat. I'll hit you with a Bible. I'll wear a cross so big you can't see anything else but the cross that's on my chest. That's not bold. That's just arrogant. That's not bold. That's just brash. That's reckless. Don't confuse the two. Esther models boldness that involves patience. 
Esther was bold enough to wait for a more suitable time and place. She understood that the king's public throne room in front of many witnesses, including Haman, was neither the time or the place to present her case. If Esther had gone straight on, if she had just blurted out her ultimate request right away, she would have risked publicly embarrassing the king as well as giving Haman a chance to manipulate his way out of trouble. Beloved, there is a time and a place to speak, and there is a time and a place to hold our peace. Sometimes the boldest action we can take is being patient enough to know the difference. Before we open our mouths, before we act, we need to pray and discern the situation that's in front of us. It's so funny that many of us will pray and discern the situation before we enter into it. We'll spend a lot of time in prayer and conversation about what is God calling us to do. And then the minute that we feel strong enough that this is what God's calling us to do, we'll just dive right in without continuing to pray and discern. That prayer and discernment is at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. We lean on the Holy Spirit the whole way. That's how we're bold in the Spirit. That's how we're patient in the Spirit. Because if we dare to wait upon the Lord, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the right opportunity, the right moment will come to us because God will prepare the way and open the door. Just how bold is Esther's patience? In case you missed it, because we kind of came in the middle of the story with our reading this morning, just how bold is Esther's patience? Even when she gets the king and Haman alone for the very first time, even after, after the king basically asks her yet again, why did you come to me? Esther risks not answering his question. She invites the king and Haman back for a second banquet. That's what we heard Lisa read today. Do you get this? I mean, put this together. I mean, we just don't jump to the end. You're not supposed to go to the king without an invitation. Esther makes the bold move of showing up. She could have had off with her head at that moment. But the king extends his scepter of acceptance and says, come see me. And says, my queen, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. What do you want? And Esther says, you know, I'd like to have a party. And I'd like you to come, and I'll tell you at the party. Great. King shows up at the party with Haman. You know the king's like, okay, this is great. And all, but what did you want? I'll give you anything you want. You know, I want you to come back tomorrow for another party. Do you know any guy that's this patient? Any guy that's this patient? Esther is patient, but the king is, she's taking a risk that just the king is continuing to be delayed. He's the king. Remember how this works. Waiting is risky, but waiting is necessary because sometimes the larger movements of God's providence are beyond our vision. God shows us glimpses of what he's doing, but we have no idea of all the ways in which God's working. Sometimes the larger movements of God's providence are beyond our vision. After all, we're limited in our witness to what is happening. We may have the benefit of knowing what happened, but Esther didn't. Esther waited for the right opportunity, for the door, the door to be opened by the Lord, and it paid off. Her patience paid off because Esther's decision, she didn't know this, to wait allowed the room for the king to struggle that first night with insomnia, which led to his consulting of the historical record, which led to him realizing that Mordecai the Jew was not honored, so it brought that person to his attention. Do you see how, and we know how pivotal this chain of events was to the king's shock reaction when finally he learns about the implications of Haman's evil decree. All of that was by God's providence, but it was also by Esther's patience, though she didn't know it. May we glean from her wisdom, her shrewdness, great word, her shrewdness, her patience, as we seek to be bold in the opportunities that the Lord puts before us. 
Like her, in the convergence of divine providence and human responsibility, if we wait upon the Lord, if we're bold enough to wait, there will come a moment, a decisive moment of revelation. And we heard that moment right here. The time is finally right, and Esther reveals to the king the treacherous plans of Haman. And how do we know the time is right? Because you know how you know the time is right? Because when it happens, then there's a dramatic, unexpected turn of events. And that's what happens here. All of a sudden, we have a dramatic, unexpected turn of events. Haman is hung on the gallows meant for Mordecai, and Mordecai gets Haman's old job and all his property. There is now both a Jewish queen and a Jewish prime minister over the Persian Empire. So things would seem to be looking up for the Jews. And though, in Sunday school and on Veggie Tales, <laughs> most stop telling the story of Esther here, the story is far from over, as we're going to discover next week. I'll leave you with that cliffhanger. <laughs> the book of, Proverbs, book of Proverbs tells us, very similar to what we see in Esther, that... Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This proverb reflects what we've seen in Esther, that providence is acknowledging that God is the architect. God is the master builder. But pay attention to the proverb and pay attention to the book of Esther. God is the master architect. God is the master builder. But human responsibility matters. Esther demonstrates that unless the laborers build, there's not much of a house. These chapters show Esther boldly living out her identity, answering God's call, and acting like a queen for such a time as this. Esther takes responsibility for what is before her, and she wields incredible authority and power. We witness it. She wields incredible authority and power, but it's not the influence and might of the Persian Empire that she's exercising. It's the power and authority of the kingdom of God, the Lord at work through her. Esther acts like a witness, using every opportunity, all the means at her disposal to reach the desired end that the Lord has. But she doesn't get ahead of God. There's a deliberate patience, yet persistence in her approach that suggests a reliance upon the leading of the Spirit, a dependence that began even before she took that first step in the throne room, a reliance that we know came out of fasting and most likely prayer. Do you see the balance here? Are you getting this as we practically try to understand how do we deal with the convergence of divine providence and our own human responsibility in our own lives? Do we see the balance? God's movement is the turning point upon which history hinges. But his work is executed and revealed through the faithful efforts of his people. We live in the relationship, out of covenant, out of our identity, and then the Lord exercises his authority and power through us. We live out the kingdom, our responsibility, our responsiveness to God's reign in this world. My brothers and sisters, it's the balance between two approaches that are often everywhere in the church. It's the balance between, on the one hand, the, the attitude in the church that says, leave it to the Lord. Let's just wait for God to drop a solution in our lap. And it's the balance between the other extreme that says, well, if it's got to be, it's got to be me. If it's got to be, it's got to be me. It's the balance between those two. It's the balance between prayer and action. It's the balance between leading, leaning on Christ and leading people to Christ. It's the balance between resting in the Lord and walking with him. It's not an either or. It's a both and. 
so funny about this is we've preached through this. Many of you have really responded to this series on Esther, and I'm very always appreciative of that and great conversations, but there's also a part, a layer of the conversation that disturbs me. That as we, you talk about, some of us talk about how we relate to Esther, it's we're, we're making Esther into some kind of Hall of Famer. Oh, I love Esther. Man, I wish I could be like Esther. Wow, <laughs> Esther, whoa. And, you know, and that's not unique to this book. That's not unique to this book. We, we tend to regard the people that we read about in the Bible as extraordinary. We, you know, how many times do we say, oh, I could never have the faith of Abraham? Oh, the strength of Moses? No way. The patience of Job? Forget about it. And the boldness of Esther? <laughs> Man, those were the guys, huh? Those were the ones, huh? No. These characters had no great advantage over us. They were flesh and blood people who faced the same challenges that we face today. They weren't different from us. What we're missing, and this is part of what we're going to cover in this Lenten series on the Bible, is part of why the Bible is a big book, a long book, is that God throws out people like Abraham, Moses, Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, Haman, not so that we can go, wow, great or bad for them, but so that we realize that they are us. That's us. We are them. So as we witness the courageous outworking of Esther's plan, let's acknowledge that what makes Esther extraordinary is not what she does, as much as it is who is at work in her and through her. God saves the queen. The queen doesn't save herself. God saves the queen. And you know what? God saves everyone else, all of us in Jesus Christ. The greatest act of divine providence is resurrection. The greatest act of divine providence is resurrection. And it's because of resurrection, it's because we can be assured of the end of our story, that all who live in dependence upon the Father, for them, death will never be the last word that we can live boldly and decisively in terms of the chapters in between. Esther was willing to answer God's call in her life, to play her unique part in the grand story, to do what had to be done. Beloved, this is all that our Father, our God, expects us to do, to go and engage those moments that he calls us to, to boldly take that first step of obedience and trust that's right in front of us. We have to be bold. We have to take that first step without feeling like we have to figure out the end result. Because here's the thing, it doesn't get any clearer than this. God is looking for our availability, not our ability. God is looking for our availability, not our ability. All we have to do is come in dependence upon our Father, and He will take care of the rest. He will take care of the outcome. We don't have to worry about how God works. We are just to trust that God does work and that He will work. Here it is, brass tacks. This is where we're living. This is where many of you talk to me, and I know others of you would probably join in this conversation. Do we want to see our family and friends come to Christ? Do we want that? Do we want to see our family and friends come to Christ? We can't reach their hearts. Let's acknowledge that out loud. We can't reach their hearts and change them. Only God can do that. But we can pray. Are you praying? We can intercede. Are you interceding? We can be bold enough to engage them where they are. 
listening to them and walking alongside them. We can be bold enough to be patient to wait for the right moment to share with them about Jesus, inviting them into that relationship, not for our own sake, not so that we can feel better, not so that we can impress our friends, but for their sake. Are we bold enough to take that step, to meet them where they are, and to be patient enough to wait with them until they get where God is leading them to? Do we want to discover the Lord's leading for our lives? We come here. You come here every week. Do you really want to know the Lord's leading for your life? And let's be honest. Confess it if truly ignorance is bliss. Do you want to know what the Lord's leading for your life is? Because here's the thing. Only the Lord can open the key doors for us. Only the Lord can do that. But you know what? If you really want to know the Lord's leading for your life, you can keep asking. You can keep seeking. You can keep knocking. We don't just have to wait for the Lord to work. We can trust that God will work and we can anticipate his work in our lives by being persistent. That's the final lesson we can take away from Esther is her persistence. She models what true intercession, what true persistence looks like. And you know what she models? You just keep coming to the throne. You just keep coming to the throne. And we need to just keep coming to the throne of grace because God's desire, God's desire is not just to get us to heaven. God's desire is to bring heaven to earth. For us to experience more healthy, more balanced, more integrated, more bold lives now. Why? Why doesn't God just make it easier? Why doesn't God just say, okay, you're done. Here's your card. See me when you're about to breathe your last breath and we'll take care of everything. You're covered. Why? Why does God desire something more than that? Why does God want us to have healthier lives, more balanced lives, more integrated lives, more bold lives? Now, why can't we just slouch along until we die because then we'll know we'll go to a better place? Why does God desire something more than that for us? Because we have to come to grips with the truth that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we are not just saved from sin and death. We have been saved for the greater battle. The larger rescue mission of reaching those who are still trapped by evil. Who are still, much like Esther's people were, living under a death sentence. Are you a Christian because of what you're saved from? Or are you a Christian because of what you're saved for? There's a big difference. Beloved, as we wrestle with that question, let us find our inspiration in our lives through Esther's humble yet bold, courageous yet patient submission in denying herself and risking her life for others. Let's be encouraged by what a little boldness and a little patience living in dependence upon our Father can do. Esther's decision and actions, as we know, went well beyond her identity. They went beyond touching her life to touching the lives of countless others. She became an agent of the kingdom. This orphan exile, she became an agent of the kingdom through which God not only changed her life, but God delivered a whole nation of people. And her story is not unique. Because the book of Esther, the book of Esther is just another chapter in the greatest story ever told of a God who purposes in Jesus Christ to rescue and heal the world through people just like you and me. God isn't looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. 
that first step of obedience. What shall we say? Will we take that first step? Will we walk together? 